morning. For anybody who may not know me, uh, I'm Anthony Bermel, one of the elders here. Um, I have the privilege of filling in for Marlon today. Um, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, continue the series that we've been going through in Mark. And we'll be starting in verse 2. To start off with, I just want to look at the first three words. Um, it says, after six days, which is kind of interesting because those of you who have been with us throughout this whole series, uh, it's been kind of this hurried, frenzy pace through the book of Mark. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of immediately they've gone here or gone there or done this or that, uh, or right after this, you know, they went and did something else. And that's been kind of playing to this audience that Mark is speaking to. That's kind of been uh, the, the point of this, this No Ordinary Man series, is to show all the things that Jesus did. Um, but we get this right away in verse 2, after six days. And so I think it's worth the question, why did Mark point this out? Uh, why six days here? And I think it's helpful to look at uh, what Jesus talked about before this, and Marlon has really talked about this the last two Sundays, but we're going to look at it a, a little bit more this morning just to refresh ourselves. And the, the question is, could, this, could the message that Jesus gave before this next experience be that important that he gave it time to sink in? Um, and So what did he talk about right before this? If you recall, back towards the end of Mark chapter 8, he had asked the question to Peter and the disciples, who do the people say I am and who do you say that I am? And, you know, the, the, the answer by the people was pretty high praise of Jesus. Um, they said some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets, but they missed the mark, right? Uh, but then the disciples, Peter, when I asked, who do you say that I am, Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Christ. They got it. They understood. Um, and, and then he goes on, Jesus goes on and gives this message about taking up your cross. Right at the end of chapter 8, he says, if anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Forever who wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. And, again, Marlon has done a really good job presenting this, but if you haven't spent some time over the last couple of weeks thinking about this, um, we probably should. If, if Jesus gave time to those who heard this message and to his disciples to let this sink in, this is something I, I think this message hit them hard. It should us, too. Um, you know, if, if you tuned in or, or were here two weeks ago, a couple of the songs that we sang uh, along with that message was King of Kings and Lord of Lords and Jesus, You Are My King. And I think oftentimes we just, you know, we, we sing these songs, but how much are we really thinking about that? I think everybody here, you know, we know what it means to obey a parent or a teacher or a coach or a boss. Uh, we, we all kind of get that, right? Uh, if we get an instruction, we know how to follow it. But this idea of king and master and lord, that's what Jesus says 
those who follow me, we have, there's things we have to lay down. There, there's desires of our, ours that we have to lay down. And really just logically, right, if we're going to call him king or master, we should do what he says, right, or not do what he says not to do. That only makes sense. Um, I think so many times, especially in America and in our culture and stuff, you know, it's such a self-gratification, instant gratification culture that, you know, there's maybe not a lot of things that we just can't do on a whim if we want to or whatever. But, um, you know, there's things, there's, there's desires that we have that are not according to God's word, right? There's things that we need to uh, be willing, if he really is our king and really is our Lord and master, like, like we say, that, that we shouldn't be doing. Um, and this idea, like Marlon had presented, of um, you know, taking up your cross, being willing to suffer. And again, I, I think in America, you know, I think as things have been occurring over the last year, more things have been making sense to me in the Word of God that it's like, boy, I read that and it, it just is becoming more and more real to me now. You know, we see some of the, the things happening around us and some of the, you know, this right being called wrong and wrong being called right and boys being called girls and girls being called boys. You know, just everything's getting all mixed up. And, you know, this canceling and everything, and it's like you can start seeing how that is going it, to... It's, it's here. It's coming, you know, where, where things are not going to be necessarily easy or convenient or pleasant for us uh, at all times. But, but if we call him king or lord, like who really cares what my feelings are or what I want to do? It's, a, it's about him. Uh, and that, that message, again, I think was something that probably rocked those guys and everybody that heard it, and it showed us too. That's not what I'm teaching on today, but if that's something you haven't thought about more than just on Sunday morning the last couple of weeks, I think that's something... Uh, you know, if you only get one thing out of today, that should probably be it. Um, that idea of surrender, that idea of surrender and, and you know, laying, laying down our lives for him. But um, So let's go to the text for today, Matthew chapter 9. We'll read verse 2 through 13 to start off with here. It says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transformed in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what he should say since they were terrified. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Then suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Then they began to question him. Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores everything, Jesus replied. How then is it written about the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah really has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. 
like one neat thing about scripture is, you know, as we read it over and over and, and as we mature and you know, each time we look at it and read it and study it, we can get something different, something new out of it. I think for this, for me, this transfiguration story, you know, it's a fairly familiar story and kind of a neat story and, and you know, you know it's important because it's in the Bible, right? But um, I think in studying it this time, I've certainly got more out of it. And hopefully if you're in the same boat as me, that uh, maybe you do too today. Uh, but up until, the, uh, until this point, Jesus has faced a lot of opposition in his ministry, right? Um, a lot of misunderstanding who he is. We just read that. You know, the people didn't understand who he was at, at this point. Um, and there's a lot of busyness, a lot of here and there, and a lot, Jesus was doing a lot of things. And um, even in the, I know Marlon has made it a practice to not talk about any of the other Gospels during the series, but in the book of John, you know, it talks about at the end of John, he says there's so many things that Jesus did that if they were all written down, you know, there wouldn't be a book big enough for it. And so Jesus was, you know, a man of action. He was doing a lot of different things. And he had just given this message that we looked at. And you know what? I think he needed a break, too. Um, I don't think there was a lot that happened in these six days. Otherwise, I don't think Mark would have pointed that out. And it seems like um, he needed a break here. And, and he took just his three closest friends with him, Peter, James, and John. There's a couple other recorded events that just those three get, got in on with Jesus uh, back in Mark 5. We looked at where Jesus raised that little girl from the dead. Again, Peter, James, and John were the only ones that got to come in and be with in that. Uh, The stuff we just looked at last week with Easter and and the crucifixion and resurrection. When Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he brought just those three guys further into the garden with him. And, you know, obviously any time you spend time in events like these with people, there's going to produce a deeper relationship and trust and understanding uh, that those guys would have would have gotten, um, but if you look at verse three, talking about Jesus, all of a sudden he was transformed or transfigured, and there's kind of this description of of what Jesus was like. They got to see Jesus like we will someday. They got to see him in his transformed state, his glorious state, and everybody who's a believer, we're going to see him like that someday. Um, and what I imagine here, uh, I really like winter and snow, but you know, you get a, a deep, fresh, powdery snow, and then you get that cold front and that sun coming out, and, and it's just so white and dazzling, you can barely even look at the snow. That's what I imagine, you know, when I read this, what, what Jesus looked like there. Um, and then it moves on to verse 4, and Elijah and Moses appeared with them. It says they were talking with Jesus. Not to the other three, they were kind of left out here, but Elijah, Moses, and Jesus were, were talking to each other. Somehow they knew who, the disciples knew who Elijah and Moses were. I suppose probably just from listening in on the conversation, they were able to figure that out. Um, but I think we can assume here in this, in this story, in this narrative, that Jesus experiencing his glorified state and talking with Moses and Elijah had to really encourage him, right? Um, it would help him continue his ministry on earth. It, that seems to be that, again, he needed this break and, and now this experience happens and it seems like he would be encouraged here. Um, 
The conversation, it says, did not include the disciples. It didn't include Peter, but yet Peter kind of jumped in there. Um, and he said, it says he really wanted to stay in the moment. It was a great experience for them, too. And in verse 5, we see Peter say, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. This idea of this tabernacle, uh, maybe some of your versions have uh, a word like tent or shelter. Um, it's like this idea of like temporary housing. Back in Leviticus 23, 33 through 43, it talks about this festival of booths or a feast of tabernacles or sukkot. It's three names. They're all, all the same. Um, but it, it's a very important Jewish festival that happened around harvest. It was kind of like a Thanksgiving. Um, and then it really it was a remembrance of uh, the Israelites' wilderness journey when they got brought out of Egypt. And they stayed, families would stay, and they'd build these temporary tabernacles or shelters, um, and they would stay in them for seven days over this festival. And it was kind of this commemoration. That's the type of housing they stayed in for 40 years when they were wandering around in the desert. So we get this idea that, like, yeah, Peter doesn't necessarily want to stay here permanently in the moment, but he wants to stay here for a while. Like maybe, maybe a week vacation, Lord. Let's, uh, let's stay with these guys for a while. Um, and it's kind of a typical Peter reaction, right? Like some of the other things that he says, you know, things that this reminds me of is, is when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And Peter says, no, Lord, uh, you're not going to wash my feet. And then Jesus says, what? If I don't, you have no part with me. So then Peter says, well, then, you know, wash everything, right? Give me a bath. Or, or when Jesus walks out to them on the water and um, Peter says, if it's you, Lord, call me out onto the water. You know, it's like sometimes he just says some of these things that are, um, that are just Peter. And this is kind of one of those moments. It's like he doesn't know what to say, but he says something. Um, and then it also says they're terrified, which it seems to be a really common reaction around Jesus. Uh, and around his work, around you know angels, whatever it it just seems like people uh, that's a really common reaction is is being terrified. So what was the point of all this? I think you know, oftentimes we get this portrayed as a experience for the disciples, and certainly it was good for them. Otherwise, Jesus went to brought them with right. Um, there was something in there for them. It was a great experience for them. Peter said that, that it is good for us to be here. But it seems to be that this mountaintop experience was really for Jesus. That he, he gained the most. Um, he got to experience his glorified state. You know, he hadn't done that for 30-some years. He had this conversation with Moses and Elijah, seemingly uh, being encouraged by them. He got to hear his father's voice and, and what he said. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Um, again, I think it was good for those guys. Uh, otherwise, they went to Broadham. But um, they didn't even get to share this, until, this experience until later on. It says uh, when they were coming down, Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they got to experience this, but not, not even share it till later on. But it would be helpful later to others, right? It's, I think it's helpful to us now. Um, and now this is a little bit of speculation, but I think as we 
when we move on to the next section, I think we'll, we'll see this a little bit. You know, there was nine other disciples that didn't get, get to come with. And we'll see in a minute what they were doing. And I think, you know, it's fair to wonder, were they disappointed? Were they frustrated at being left out? I think once we see what they were doing, that's probably a reasonable assumption. Um, but in verse 10, it says, they, they discussed among themselves what is rising from the dead mean. And of course, last week, Marlon talked about this on Easter. And I mean, it's just what he said, right? He told them that quite a few times. And, and we can understand, you know, yeah, Jesus raised others from the dead. But nobody raises themselves from the dead. So we can understand where they would maybe wonder what that meant. But, but Jesus, you know, <laughs> there was no secret. He talked about that over and over again. And he meant exactly what he said. And then in 11 through 13, really seems like these three guys were really trying to put all this together. Um, they were asking some questions. Uh, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus goes on to say that he has. This is referring to John the baptizer. Um, some of this wording that Jesus used here about Elijah, uh, it's the exact same wording as in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, and Luke 1, 13 through 17, talking about John the baptizer. So that's that's uh, what he's saying is, yes, that has happened. Elijah has come first. John the baptizer had come first and prepared away. So let's move on to the next section. Uh, I'll read 14 through 29. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. All of a sudden, when the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him or surprised. Then he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Out of the crowd, one man answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Wherever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought him to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately convulsed the boy. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him, Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said, and many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Then Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible to the one who believes. Immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly coming together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and convulsing him violently. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him and he stood up. After he went into a house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So this mountaintop experience didn't, didn't seem to last very long. You know, there was conversation, transfigurement, and then as soon as uh, that was done, it sounds like they came right back down. So it came from this great mountaintop experience right back into the thick of things, and it didn't seem to be very pleasant, did it? came right into an argument. Um, and I think, again, I'm going to ask the question, and as we go through this, I think this makes sense. 
Could it be that the other nine were trying to show that they could handle things on their own here? The crowd had come for Jesus. Things weren't going well without him. Um, and, and in verse 15, it says they were surprised or amazed when Jesus showed up. And I kind of thought to myself, why, why, would that, why would that say that? I think an analogy might be kind of helpful here. So imagine that you were going to uh, kind of an event that Minnesota Vikings wide receiver Adam Thielen was going to put on, all right? So he was going to speak, he was going to put on a clinic, he was going to talk about running pass routes, catching balls, maybe give some one-on-one instruction, and he would have some other wide receivers with him. But uh, you show up to the event, and Adam Thielen's not there. There's a bunch of no-name practice squad receivers that you've never heard of, and you're like, well... You know, they say, well, we, we, we practice with Adam Thielen. We can do anything he can do. This will be fine. Um, we'll, we'll just we'll do the event anyway. So you give him a chance. comes to the practical time, and it's like, man, these guys' routes aren't crisp. They're messing stuff up. They're dropping balls, and, and things are kind of going haywire. People are grumbling, mumbling, like, what are we here for, you know? And then all of a sudden you look over, and there's Adam Thielen walking. What are you going to do? You're not going to stay here with these other guys, are you? You're going to go to Adam Thielen. And so that's kind of what I picture here. It's like Jesus, nine of his disciples were there. seemed like they were kind of trying to handle things, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up, and everybody goes to Jesus. makes sense. Um, and then in verse 16, we see this moment where Jesus asks, it's like a what's going on here type moment. What are you arguing with them about? come into a big argument. And we see in verse 17 and 18, one guy speaks up out of the crowd. He says, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak wherever it seizes him, throws him down, he foams at the mouth, becomes rigid. You weren't here. So I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. So you see this moment where it's like things are really starting to go south, right? Um, And then we get this rebuke from Jesus. In verse 19, his reply is, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring them to me. So we get this rebuke, and it seems to really highlight frustration and disappointment from Jesus. And it says this failed healing had to do with lack of faith and belief, doesn't it? And the question is, who does this rebuke target? I I think there's some target to everybody here. Certainly his disciples, it seemed like he was frustrated and disappointed with them and like there was a lack of faith and belief amongst his disciples. As we see in a minute, you know, the boy's father had a lack of faith. He brought him, but there was a lack of faith and belief there. It seemed like Jesus was pretty frustrated with him. The religious leaders were there. That's pretty normal, right? It seemed like they seemed to be about everywhere Jesus was and, and had some challenge for him or some, uh, you know, they were after him for one thing or another. And here they're in a big argument. Uh, it seems like every time they show up, things get confrontational. So it seems like there's maybe some rebuke there. Uh, just you get this overwhelming <laughs> kind of picture into Jesus' emotion here. But yet, when it comes down to verse 24, 
when Jesus specifically talked to the boy's father, the boy's father really had a great response, didn't he? It should be really our, all of our response. I do believe, help my unbelief. There's times where, you know, we believe, but is it really, is our faith and our belief really where it should be? And, and you know, maybe we need to ask, ask our, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me here. So I think that's an excellent response. Um, and as we get down to the end of this story, verse 28, kind of the event is done. Jesus went into a house. His disciples were there privately with him. Doesn't seem to be anybody else around. And they ask him this question, why couldn't we drive out this demon? What happened here? Kind of get the impression that they had some embarrassment, right? Um, maybe an inward focus. Like, not why couldn't we help this kid out, but why couldn't we do this? seems like there's an inward focus there. Um, and then Jesus, very short response. And again, this is something I never really put a lot of thought into. Like, oh, that's interesting, prayer and fasting. What does this have to do with anything? But he says this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. What, what is prayer and fasting? It's just communication and communion with the Lord, right? It's seeking him. It's spending time with him. It's helping us stay in the source keeping our focus where it needs to be, hearing from the Lord. I think they miss that. seems like they tried to do this uh, to call out this demon on their own, on their own strength. You know, the power only can come through the source. If you try to do something outside the source, if they tried to do this outside, of, if they tried to do it on their own, it wasn't going to work, right? That's why, to me, it seems like the nine disciples are trying to handle things on their own while Jesus was gone. Um, things need to be done through the source, need to be done for his honor and glory. I mean, even as I was thinking about this, a practical example, I mean, even me standing up here this morning, it's like, I really, I mean, it is, it's an absolute privilege uh, to, to bring a message, but I don't want to bring it. I want the Holy Spirit to speak through me. Like, it doesn't mean anything if it's not for his honor and glory. Um, and this was a miracle, right? I think every time that we look at a miracle in Scripture, something that's helpful for me is to ask two questions. Uh, every miracle has these two elements. First is, what is the practical need here? So in this uh, calling out of this demon and helping this boy, what's the practical need? It, it's, it's pretty simple, right? This boy was being thrown into fire. He was being thrown into water. It was to save his life. It was to help this kid. And also, I mean, everybody here who is a parent, can you imagine having a kid like that? Really to help the family, the parents. Uh, there was um, a real practical need here uh, that Jesus really helped out this kid. He saved his life. He helped his parents. He helped his family. How about the purpose then? I think almost every miracle, maybe every miracle that is recorded in the Bible, really the ultimate purpose is for Jesus to be revealed who he is, that he was the Son of God. Um, but I think there's a little bit more to this one. Yes, it's to show others who he was, but I think there's also this idea of demonstrating the importance of belief and faith. You know, that as Jesus rebuked everybody, there, people were missing that. And also, 
I think for the disciples, it was to keep their focus where it should be. It was to not do things on their own, but to, to do things for His honor and glory and through Him. So what's some application here on these, on these stories? I think the first one, this mountaintop experience, just as Jesus seemed to need to get away, I think sometimes we need to get away for encouragement, refreshment, to hear from God, to refocus ministry, to plan, whatever. It might just be for a break. Fill in, you know, the, the list could go on and on. Um, Jesus kind of had a typical pattern of making time to get away, didn't he? You know, a lot of times it was just for a short time. Uh, this time maybe, you know, up on the mountain it wasn't for very long, but it seems like there was about seven days here where maybe not a lot of ministry happening. Um, so sometimes for a short time, sometimes for a longer time, but to connect with God and to stay refreshed in the work of his ministry, um, you know, in, in real practicality, you know, things like Bible camps, retreats, vacations, um, you know, maybe just shorter focus times with the Lord, making sure we're putting time, a little bit of time aside every day to read and study his word, prayer, maybe um, fasting on occasion. Um, but a lot of times, like Peter, we don't want to leave those times, do we? But they came right back down and needed to jump back into the mess of life and ministry, and I think there's a lot of application there for us. But it is important to get away um, with the idea of coming back and jumping back in. And then also, again, staying in the source. Um, nothing matters if not done through him and his love. You know, I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 13:1, where it says, you know, anything not done in love, not done in that right attitude, it's, it might be something good, you might be right, but if, if it's not done in love, it's just a, a banging symbol or a, a gong. You know, it doesn't, doesn't have a lot of meaning. So just staying in that source, uh, doing things for, for the right reasons. So uh, let's close in prayer here. Heavenly Father, we are just grateful for your word. We're grateful to be together here uh, with like people of like faith where we can gather, hear from you, sing praises to you. Uh, we just ask that what we have heard and, and read today, that it would be on our minds, that would be the kind of followers of you that you desire and that you uh, laid out in the end of Mark there that we are willing to lay down our own desires, our own feelings, you know, maybe how we would have um, laid things out or done things is not how you have, but uh, our desire is to surrender to you. And again, we just give you praise and we ask these things in your name. Amen.